So, according to my files, this is the ninth episode of my How to Write a Novel series. Rather than a conventional how-to guide, it's more like a personal diary of my writing a novel. From scratch, I'm recording all my experiences and laying them out for you so you can possibly learn, possibly spectate on my misery. I mean, I guess if you watch someone walk out over a frozen pond and plunge through the ice, there is some educational value to that spectacle. So anyway, if you're interested, but you haven't listened to the previous episodes, they're all in a single playlist on my SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com forward slash Tim Clare, or you can just Google how to write a novel in quotes and Tim Clare in quotes or death of a thousand cuts. I mean, you, you know how to find the podcast, presumably because here you are listening to me now, unless of course you're listening via some very inconsiderate person on a bus who's listening to it out loud, in which case, put your headphones on, you antisocial rascal. Um, Or you can just jump in now. Uh, I don't have any means of policing that or stopping you. Do as thou wilt. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. This, as I've already said, is episode nine of my occasional and unexpectedly high stakes series where I'm sort of mapping the process of writing a novel. And immediately the premise was artificial because I'd never normally reflect on what I was doing like this and record it, nor would I dream of letting people see early ideas or first drafts. But I hoped, and I still hope in an impossibly optimistic way, that it might show a different side of the creative process, then it might be useful to see how difficult someone else finds it and how clumsy and tentative the whole deal is. Not that I'm under the illusion that anyone believes I'm some kind of genius, but I I know my books are reasonably competent on the line and I have published books, five, under my belt now. And and for some people, it's like, ooh, a published novelist. And author you you can't see but i was i was doing scare quotes around author there anyway i i don't have to do all this agonizing because i know people have found it interesting so far because they've listened to it and a bunch of you have written to me to say so so that's that's just i i guess i bring all this up at the beginning of every episode now because we're trained to fear above all things self-indulgence Like if there were any shred of a suggestion that I thought I were leading you through some sort of masterclass, uh, I I feel like I ought to be slathered in meat paste and thrown to a pack of wild wolves. Which is silly, right? It's okay to think our own writing is, is rad. It's okay to be in love with our ideas. It's okay to throw open the door to one's writing shed and say, hey folks, if you want to see what I get up to, come on in. I'm not bursting into a busy train carriage full of commuters with a portable amp clip to my belt and forcing them to listen to me. After all, this is an opt-in medium. But I think maybe the reason I've done it every time, in a a way I I don't with other episodes, this hand ringing, this digging my toe into the carpet and uh, deferentially tugging my forelock, is I feel more vulnerable than I have doing pretty much anything else. Uh, And and we've recorded over a hundred hours of interviews on this podcast. We've done literally hundreds of episodes now. I say we, that's a gesture of magnanimity on my part. To you, the listenership, of course, you had no literal part in the production of the episodes. Not that I'm resentful. I didn't expect you to chip in. I'm just setting firm boundaries here. Yet for all the work that we, I, have extruded from our our great uh, podcast orifice, this series feels the riskiest to me not necessarily the best in fact i'm pretty sure it's not but the most emotionally and reputationally perilous because as i've said before the times i feel least like a writer are when i'm writing because that's when i come up against my shortcomings when i'm avoiding writing i can pretend with some degree of success that i'm good at it i can talk about it articulately and and make these sweeping pronouncements that sound so grand and knowledgeable that even i half convince myself because i've done 
a literature degree and an MA in prose fiction. I used to read creative writing guides while I was on the loo. I, 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 I have the lingo down and I can I can talk a pretty good game, you know? I, I can say things that make people nod along. And, 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 and I find myself nodding along as well as I as I perform this identity. Goodness, what a lively appreciation of the arts this hirsute sane gentleman with adequate personal hygiene has. Talking so ardently of books and the like. I bet he can pen a good tale. I bet he's a natural raconteur with a biting intellect, eh? Air readers? Well, no, I'm fucking crap at it. Or at least it feels that way when I sit down to write. I've spent a lot of my life honing my ability to spot shite prose. And, and my goodness, that radar is never more sensitive than when I try to write something myself. Beep, beep. The call is coming from inside the building. Ring, ring. Hey, it's me, your cousin, Marvin Novel. You know that shit writing you were looking for? Well, listen to this, etc. Sorry, the analogy rather prolapsed towards the end there, but I, I trust you sensed the intended emotional tone. Anyway, look, here I am trying to do this book. I, I thought making it sort of pulp fantasy would make it easy, but it didn't because A, uh, pulp fantasy is not e necessarily an easier genre to write than anything else. Two, my self-criticism is in no way bound to one particular style or form. And fourth, actually pulp fantasy is arguably one of the most culturally prominent well-known genres on planet Earth. So it's not even like I picked something obscure like Bizarro or cosy Viking mysteries or an entirely text-based version of Where's Wally. I'm not sure how that would work. I guess it would be like those crossword clues that are like assassin hidden in Japan, five letters, where the letters W-A-L-L-Y were, were snuck into a lengthy ensemble scene where pirates are somehow all yeeting crabs at merfolk. You know, all your classic Wally tropes. Unless you live in the United States, in which case you will, of course, know the characters Waldo. Strangely, the UK Wally books adopt the name Oddlaw for Wally's nemesis, which is, of course, Waldo backwards, but makes no etymological sense in that instance, except I guess that Oddlaw scorns the law. He, he regards it as odd, if you will, though in the books he's never at any point shown doing anything remotely criminal. He simply exists, dressed differently in black and yellow instead of Wally's traditional white and, and red. He, he, he's just present in the same general area as Wally across multiple scenes. I guess that counts as stalking or something. Maybe he's in breach of a restraining order, but that's not something we can locate within the text itself. Incidentally, Wally was changed to Waldo for the American edition because, and here I quote the Waldo wiki, quote, the American publishers of the book felt the name would not resonate with the North American readers, end quote. Why Waldo should resonate more than Wally with Americans, I have no idea. Maybe they felt it was evoking the late great Ralph Waldo Emerson, um... It sounds like nonsense to me, especially given that another British export, the board game Cluedo, was given the opposite treatment when it crossed the Atlantic. Apparently the Latin pun in the title was too much for Americans with their lack of classical education. It's a portmanteau of Clue and Ludo, the latter of which means I play, therefore Cluedo. Clever, eh? So, so, so the publishers shortened it to Clue. They took the dough off. No, no consistency. Frankly, America, you can keep your independence. I'm glad we're shot of you. Fickle. Uh, eh, eh, I, I, sorry, I got sidetracked slightly. I have the, a horrible feeling that that is not even the first time I've gone off on one about Where's Wally and Cluedo. So my qualified and insincere apologies. Anyway, I, I spent a few episodes brainstorming ideas for this maelstrom of 
regret that Reason Insists must be a book. Coming up with some rough ideas for the premise and some thoughts about potential characters. I've wrung my hands over the protagonist's gender and the tone and really thinking about what I want the story's voice to be. You know, I don't enjoy watching or reading grim dark fantasy. I've said this before, I find it edgelordy and profoundly dull, but I fear that's what the story's premise, this monarch who gets assassinated and comes back from the dead to avenge his own death, sort of wants to pull towards. That's what it suggests, a cynical, murdery tale where human life is cheap and no one really is very nice, which I don't want to write, you know? I I don't want to contribute to these bodies of work which paint everyone as either shitty or incompetent. If you're too kind, you're gonna get killed, and otherwise you've just got to be sort of mean, but own it, I guess, not the wrong sort of mean. I, I, I just find those dolls, and they always end in a ambiguous draw. Um, they're really boring. But I said I was going to write this story and I said I wasn't going to worry too much if it was original or whatever. So here I am and that's my problem. Anyway, I I shared my first attempt at an opening a few episodes ago and dissected it afterwards. And and many people messaged me to say they found my analysis of my own work a bit mean and dispiriting. And on hearing that, I was like, yeah, welcome to my head. But I also had this feeling of like, yes, but the fact I'm unhelpfully self-critical doesn't mean that what I wrote was good either or something that I even like I don't know it's so easy for me to get lost in this maze of tiny editorial fires that I feel like I have to fight and maybe they don't need fighting at, at all you know it's it, it's tricky and and since starting this as I mentioned last episode I've had a diagnosis of autism and one of the uh, one of the things that categorises the autistic phenotype is a, a tendency for black and white thinking and getting stuck on small details without seeing the big picture. So maybe something that is a natural mistake and tendency of people writing books to get a bit hooked on small details and kind of get stuck and not be able to finish them is a particularly yawning pitfall for yours truly. Well, look, what I've known since the beginning, because it's a basic problem every novel faces, is that I have to start somewhere. Both in the sense that I have to start the writing process, you can't infinitely postpone that and produce a book. If you want to go to the moon, at some point you have to go to the moon. And, I'll, you know, I have to learn through doing as well. But also, the second sense it's true is in the sense that the story, the narrative, has to choose a point at which to begin. Do we start in the ancient mists of time with the birth of the world? Do we start with the founding of the kingdom? Do we start by establishing what normal life looks like for our protagonist? Do we open with their murder? Do we start with their coming round in the afterlife and realising they're dead? Do we start with their resurrection and the rude shock of waking up on some ritual slab surrounded by cowled monks clutching sacrificial daggers? Or do we start even later with their finally cornering their first target and that person realising with horror who it is, who faces them? It's the dead monarch and then we wheel back to explain how we got here and who the characters are so it's like a high stakes prologue in that case. And then record scratch, voiceover, yeah, that's me. I bet you're wondering how I ended up dead, slam cut to castle, subtitle, nine months earlier. The monarch in contrasting surroundings maybe being fawned over, maybe with the same character we just saw them squaring up to. Now they're being all deferential or super friendly or whatever. So now we're like, ooh, how are things going to change? And I realise that that has become something of a cliched opening especially in the kind of Netflix boxed set context but I don't know like now you know the teaser prologue opening has the disadvantage of course of giving your reader something cool and engaging then immediately snatching it away and going no first you must eat this massive plate of backstory vegetables only then will you get your action-packed high drama pudding and that just seems to me a very puritanical way of structuring a story 
Oh, but the character development's good for you. It'll make the stakes seem higher later. It'll put everything into context. Well, maybe. I mean, Dune by Frank Herbert is a great example of a novel that sort of puts its cards on the table fairly early on in terms of letting you know that shit's about to go down and there's a conspiracy and this character here's a traitor and it increases rather than decreases the tension. It's also thematically relevant because we have a character who, uh, as the story goes on, learns to sense the actual future and so much of the book's lore is about whole organisations who sense and predict and plan for a future they're sure that's going to come and kind of manipulate it so I'm not saying it can't be done I've I you know the honours starts in pretty much an identical way with a sort of high stakes moment and then it goes back to contextualise it uh, you know, it, 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 I've I've done it myself. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just want to challenge the conventional wisdom that says you always have to sort of super gradually drip feed the reader story and tension and stakes and any sense of action or shit kicking off uh, can only be hinted at, and then you immediately have to earn it with seeing the characters clipping their toenails now having said all that and to be honest slightly having slightly convinced myself in the process that that sounds like it would be quite a cool opening that's not what i've done um i i I had a go at rewriting the opening or rather just taking another run at it from a completely different direction so in the first version i read a few episodes ago there was like a queen queen abraxia and she's opening some kind of winter fair that appears to have vague allusions to demons and she has a chamberlain there who fusses over her because he thinks she's at risk of being assassinated you know he's constantly worried she's gonna be poisoned or something and she's all like don't be such a fuss pot no one's gonna assassinate me which is very on the nose dramatic irony right you know the reader's thinking ho ho we know better because I know I'm reading a book called, I guess in that case it would be called The Only Good Queen and it has stuff in the blurb. I It's unlikely I've got to the story at this point without knowing it's about a queen who gets assassinated and comes back to life. I'll have that. So I, I'm reading it going, oh, you, you, you silly queen. You, you, all, you, you should listen to your Chamberlain. Anyway, she, she in that scene, she, she drinks some hot wine in a sort of slightly defiant, vaguely nihilistic way and that's about as far as I got so I just sort of didn't feel super jazzed about the scene for a bunch of reasons it didn't feel like a compelling hook I didn't particularly feel drawn to the queen she didn't have any obvious problems except maybe a slightly overprotective chamberlain I didn't really like the way it opened with a a misdirect like the equivalent of a cat scare so uh I, I, I described it an executioner's axe, chopping off a child's head. Oh no, that's a terrible thing to see. Then I revealed, oh, it's a dummy. And also the child has horns, which isn't totally explained in context, but I guess I was alluding to the idea that there's been, and maybe is still an ongoing conflict with demons that this nature is, nation is involved in and is maybe celebrating some kind of qualified victory via this festival. I don't know. I, I just felt like I was expecting the reader to care about this liberated slightly bolshy queen and i was sort of being edgy like i chopped a child's head off in the first line can you handle it i mean i'm doing that thing again aren't i of criticizing my own work in a way that maybe seems a bit mean-spirited but like as i say i I just feel like the main character came across her main problem was she was just a bit sort of bored and listless and that doesn't feel like a super gripping problem for her to face so I had another go after let's remember months of avoiding writing fiction which hasn't been purely down to my misgivings it has been a tricky year and I've also been working on a a completely different book but um it was partially affected by those misgivings and I've actually got two versions here today for you which with your indulgence or indeed with not without it I'm, I'm, I'm going to share both of them so you can hear them back to back. Um, one is a slightly revised version of the previous one. So hopefully that'll be useful for you to hear one version and then hear how I edited it a bit. Um, because if this is to be a fairly transparent process, and I, I don't think I can... 
properly read out an entire novel if I got that far, but I can certainly read you bits. Um, you know, I will occasionally have to share with you the actual work. I think that's useful. But what I'm not going to do this time is do the classic Death of a Thousand Cuts line-by-line breakdown of what I think is wrong with either piece. I, I've learnt my lesson, I hope, a bit from last time. And if I'm going to genuinely embrace this idea of not trying to redesign the entire aeroplane while it's still in the air, I've got to accept that it's way too early to be trying to make my prose publication ready because the characters, the scene, all of it might prove irrelevant due to later decisions. I might just choose to write the story totally differently. So hopefully this will be interesting and or helpful to you. Anyway, here's version one. Elrun peered through a gap in the heavy black drapes. The queue spread from the courtyard, flowing across the outer ward, through the barbican and over the bridge into the city. A fine grey rain fell, coating cowled heads and cobbles in a newborn slickness. What the fuck are they doing? Elrune turned to Chamberlain Mortigan, his Chamberlain, from today onwards. The realisation felt like missing a step in the dark. The old man's neatly trimmed whiskers still contained more red than silver, but the past week had visibly aged him. The hook-shaped scar around his left eye had once been little more than a faint crescent. Now, by the flickering light of the votive candles that sat melting on every nook, shelf and table, it appeared angry and fresh. Mortigan frowned. Showing you their bellies, sire. Elrune winced at sire. To hear it so soon, while his mother lay cold in her flag-draped casket, felt faintly indecent. From a strict protocol perspective, Mortigan's mode of address was, of course, quite proper. Elrune was king. He rubbed his tired eyes. I don't follow. Word this morning was the queue had reached the broker's ward. That was close to six miles. Elrune parted the drapes with his fingertips and gazed through a slit across the misty roofs of the city. Even in the rain it looked unusually vivid, and it took him some time to realise that this was because the great chimney stacks of the brickworks, breweries, dyers and armories had temporarily ceased belching out smoke. South of the river, the cathedral was a black mountain, its eight spires seeming to hold up the sky. Beyond, he could just make out the curtain wall and the vast silhouettes of airships moored at the sky docks. He imagined the queue flowing back and back, its sluggish girth filling the streets like the coils of a huge python that had crawled into a sewer pipe to digest its prey. Six miles of shuffling, sodden bodies. Where do they sleep? What do they eat? They don't, sire. But it's pissing down. I suspect they are aware. Elrune turned away from the window and staggered towards his chair, overcome by a wave of dizziness. He had barely slept. Each time he closed his eyes he saw her sunken bloodless cheeks, the way they had arranged her head in the centre of the pillow, like a ham on a platter. Kneeling at her bedside he had felt nothing, save a creeping sense of unreality. The thing beneath the quilt had looked like a wax model, and a crude one at that. The Queen is dead. No matter how many times he repeated the words, they refused to convince. He could not accept it. He did not, in his heart, believe it. Should I go down there? Mortigan snapped a bit of wax off the nightstand. To what end? I could take them food, some bread or something. They're not pigeons, sire. Elrune felt his cheeks prickle with heat. I didn't mean that. I... "'You're supposed to be in mourning,' said Mortigan. "'It's hardly fitting for the king to be out on the co cobbles serving snacks. "'Why isn't it?' "'Elrune heard the callow petulance in his voice. "'Mother had wielded her emotions like a cudgel. "'When she grew frustrated, it enhanced her authority. "'He just sounded lost and brattish.' "'Chamberlain Mortigan threaded his thick fingers, "'took a long, slow breath and closed his eyes.' Where's Pasco? I'm sorry? Mortigan opened one eye. Her Majesty's dog, sire. Where is he? I don't know. Still at the foot of her bed, I presume. 
Since the beginning of her short convalescence, Pasco had lain on the tasselled rug in her bedchamber with his chin on his paws and refused to move. Whenever a visitor had entered, he had raised his shaggy head and growled until she shushed him. Do you know why he's there? So that's um, as far as I got with that. You'll notice that I, I've changed the gender of the protagonist to a king. Um, see my vexed discussion of that on a previous episode, but I just decided in this version to make him Elrune, as I've called him, a man. I don't think it actually makes a difference plot-wise or thematically at the moment. Maybe at some point the character will change back. I don't know. I'm not convinced I'd write a male or female monarch any differently, really, which might be a slight against my my craft abilities. Though, though you know, I, I know probably gendering them, you know, the reader might feel subtly differently about them. But, you know, we don't have to replicate specific systems of prejudice or oppression in our fantasy world. Certainly, if you're going to have magic and people being brought back from the dead, you're also free to imagine a world where misogyny is less culturally and institutionally prominent, whatever other injustices the societies you portray might have. I, I think part of me just wanted to experiment with writing a man because all the protagonists of my novel so far have been female. Um, that's not really been a conscious choice, and to be honest, perhaps naively, it doesn't inform much of how I write them. I, I, I feel like gender, you know, in the same way as sexuality and race, is something that only inflects our identity and behaviour in certain contexts, like the world makes us more or less aware of our gender depending on the circumstances we find ourselves in. I'm not sure many of us are conscious of eating beans on toast in a gendered way. Maybe it's continually shaping our perceptions and choices in some minor or in some situations major extent. Clearly no one gets to escape having some relationship with the concept and, and various cultural norms related to it. But I must admit as a writer it's something I'm aware of and yet quietly apathetic about which might reflect the fact that as a white cis man, I'm, I'm given the most room when it comes to performance of gender. I don't know. Maybe this character will return to being a queen at some later draft. Maybe they will have a more complex relationship to gender. Who knows? As I've said before, I'm not going to go into a detailed critique of this scene I've just written because um that would that just feels like it would be counterproductive. So I'll just neutrally point out here that we again see the Chamberlain character, this guy who gets to have opinions about statecraft here. I've called him Chamberlain Mortigan in the previous scene that I wrote. He was called Seldom Abraxas. I do like the name Seldom, but maybe it just it doesn't suit this slightly more cynical, sinister, eminent squeeze. The, the guy before just sounded like a a fuss pot under worry war is like, oh, don't poison yourself, your majesty. This chap sounds a bit more scheming. And also you can tell that this was written post the actual death of the queen in the UK because I've added the element of a dead queen. That's new. The queen is dead. Our main character has suddenly been thrust into the position of monarch by his mum's death. So we meet the kingdom at a point of transition and potential turmoil. And it's weird for him, you know, the main character. So, so my instinct is that this scene is a bit better than the previous one. You know, it's better than just meeting a bored monarch in a, in a, in their year in year whatever of their continuing rule, because it's just a festival. You know, this guy Elrune, I've called him, which sounds like a broadly passable fantasy esque name, has suddenly been born up by his mother's death to become king. But I want to jump in now and say I, I wasn't happy with this scene or I was trying to continue writing it and I felt itchy is all I can really describe it as something tonally felt off to me so I, I came back to it and I was like oh, you know it felt a bit exposition heavy early on there it felt like some it felt to me like someone doing a fantasy opening like a a weird little man unrolling his carpet at the flea market and setting down all his grubby little trinkets for sale. Ah, look, here is Ancient Battle Lane, and if you look to your right, you'll see the Tower of the Black MacGuffin. Like, it just felt very transparent and world-buildy in a way that makes me feel like I'm being world-builded at. 
So I had to go at writing it again and just tidying things up. And I, I don't know if I succeeded, but I thought I'd share the rewrite so you can compare the two semi side by side. Like you've just heard the previous one. And, and one thing before we go on is that I, I decided I didn't like Elrune as a name. It sounded too close to Elrond and to Elron Hubbard. And also it's a bit fey and elven. But I did like Mortigan, especially as it strikes me that it's almost a weak pun. So I, I just yoinked that for the protagonist. So now we have Prince, actually now King, Mortigan is the protagonist. Anyway. Mortigan stood at the window of his tower, watching the queue. It flowed out of the courtyard, folded back on itself a dozen times to fill the outer ward, then oozed through the barbican and over the martyr's bridge. Through the rain-streaked leaded glass, the bowed heads of mourners looked like scales. A monarch is never more powerful than in death. Mortigan started at the voice. He turned to find Siavomir standing in the centre of the room, leaning heavily on his staff of office. Gods, how long have you been there? Time enough to sheathe a dagger between your shoulder blades. Siavomir's gaze drifted to the window, or perhaps affect the grieving king's tragic defenestration. He wore, as always, his dusty green robes and an unreadable half-smirk. Why couldn't the old bastard manage a single normal interaction? Why did everything have to be a fucking lesson? Just knock next time. Assassins don't knock, sire. Mortigan massaged a temple with two fingers. This nonsense tried his patience on the best of days, let alone when he had barely slept. But you're not an assassin. Siavomir smiled. In the flickering light of the votive candles that sat melting on every nook, shelf and table, his wrinkled features seemed to shift and reconfigure. Not today. He shuffled over to a stool and used the silver-shod tip of his staff to drag it away from the wall. He sat with a grunt, took a couple of deep breaths, then began smoothing the folds of his robe. His whiskers still contained more red than silver, and Mortigan wondered if even this show of infirmity was a performance. Was guile a virtue in a chamberlain? How competent was too competent? Did you want something? The old man chuckled, rocking forward. Between the carved forks of his staff, a bulbous black spider plucked at strands of silk with a harpist's grace. Siavomir glanced again at the window. It goes all the way back to the broker's ward, he said. Half the streets are impassable. Gods! Mortigan pictured the queue stretching back and back, coiling through the city's cobbled lanes. The people would be waiting for days. Perhaps they loved her after all. Love is a private thing. This has little to do with love, sire. What then? Scorn? Are they waiting for two days in the rain just to gloat? Siavomir turned the head of his staff this way and that, the spider's eyes scintillating like rubies. When you enter the room and Pasco rolls onto his back, is that love? Mortigan felt a pang. Protocol meant dogs were confined to the kennels until after the funeral. The past two days had felt strange, interminable and empty. More than once he had considered sneaking out of his state-mandated confinement to smuggle Pasco back into the castle. What could they do to stop him? Still, the gossamer threads of tradition had held him back. Demonstrating how easily they were broken felt for reasons he could not quite articulate, not merely improper, but dangerous. They're mourners, not dogs. Do you know what we did to his ancestors, the wild wolves of the steppe? We rounded them up, killed their leaders. The rest we watched. If they growled or bared their teeth, they died. Drowned, bludgeoned, run through on pikes. 
Generation after generation, the slightest spark of rebellion meant death. Now we have animals who cower without understanding why, who compete for our approval never knowing a whip. He remembers, sire. His blood remembers. He's proving he can humble himself. Siavamir turns towards the window. That's all they're doing. The queen is dead. Some ancestral memory stirs. They feel you watching. And so, without truly knowing why, they arrange themselves spontaneously into a spectacle of order to prove they still remember. Behold, your majesty, how we submit without violence. Please, your majesty, do not reteach the lesson. Mortigan studied the old Chamberlain's expression for signs of mockery. Growing up, he had never been sure how seriously to take his dark pronouncements on statecraft. They seemed sincere enough, but whenever Mortigan had echoed them, either in substance or verbatim, Siavamir's reaction implied he found such ideas absurd and impossibly callow. Was this mother's philosophy? Siavamir turned out his bottom lip and made a show of studying his rough, ringed fingers. Her Majesty understood there are many layers to reality. Mortigan tried to ignore the weight in his chest. Reality seemed a very distant concept these past few days. He could not shake the maddening conviction that Mother was not really dead, that this was all some elaborate test, and she was watching, waiting for him to fail. Well, she is gone, he said, not really believing it. He turned back to the window, pressed his knuckles to the cold glass. In the rain and mist, the city was melting, the cathedral's eight spires mere suggestions in the distance, the sky docks and curtain wall lost beneath a grey shroud. The realist thing was the black river of mourners. I shall have to make my own way. Rain struck the pane in hocked gobbets. Siavamir's slow breaths roared like wind down a chimney. The legs of his stool creaked. After the coronation, the council will be eager to convene, he said. Mortigan's heart sank further. Oh, good. There are several pressing matters to attend to. Regrettably, your enemies will have used this period of mourning to steal a considerable march on you. I have enemies now. Siavamir passed his palm back and forth over a candle flame. Naturally, and the council will be watching very closely to see how you respond. You're a very sunny fellow, Siavamir. Did Mother ever tell you that? The old man grinned. Constantly, sire. He snapped his fingers, and the flame snuffed. So I just want to explain the rationale behind a couple of decisions I've made there, not to do a kind of the classic workshop thing of going yeah but this is why you've got to understand that actually what I did that you thought was bad was good um just to let you in on the process because this isn't a workshop it's a kind of open door me working on my own work so I'm conscious that I've given multiple assurances I'm, I'm not about to dive into tearing my own work apart and I'm not going to do that you know we're learning I'm learning at least that that way of working is counterproductive and to be honest I think I just need to move on from here and start writing to get more shape and tone I've said before that I don't feel like characters come properly alive for me at least till around 30,000 words and and then it's like you know the model of them in my head has just enough data to you know it can then run the simulation and have the person more or less think for themselves so at the moment I don't really have characters so much as ciphers and ideas and themes. Uh, I don't have a, a rounded person that I feel like I'm putting into these moments. So first off, I, I, I changed the first line from Elrune peered through a gap in the heavy black drapes to Mortigan stood at the window of his tower watching the queue. Do I think the latter is perfect? No. I, I dare say I would have plenty of monkeying to do with this first scene if it indeed ended up being the first scene, which we can't know at the moment. But if you've heard me talk about constructing sentences, I hope you'll have an inkling of an idea why I made the change I did. 
So this is the first sentence of the story proper. I've sort of said in previous episodes that I have like a little uh, quotation that I want, I'd want i want to start the whole thing with, but this is the first sentence in the story proper. And I think the cue is the important noun to emphasise, not the heavy black drapes. I mean, sure, you know, the latter implies mourning, the heavy black drapes. You know, we, we get, we're getting a concretized sense of tone. But I, and I'm very unoriginal in this because this has been true of the whole, of the UK, but I think the motive, the motif of the cue uh, and mourning, and, and like it's almost like this serpent slithering into the castle. I just think that's, uh, you know, I, I'd rather emphasise the cue and ask her, what's the, why why are people queuing like i like that it's a, it i think it's more of a, an interesting hook to me um i think it's a preferable first line for now anyway so i've called the chamberlain uh Siavomir because i just like the name and it makes him sound less like a, a funny butler in a farce which is what he was when he was seldom but also i had to come up with a new name for him because he couldn't be mortigan because now the king is Mortigan and his name can't sound too much like the king's. Um, and I gave him a staff with a live spider in the centre of it, just because I wanted something slightly unusual and kooky to signal that there's going to be more fantastical elements coming up later. So I, when I mention that, it just makes it clear this isn't like alternate history uh, kingdom stuff. There, there's actually going to be weirdness. I just think that's a nice signaling um of genre it's good to get that stuff early in although a spider isn't inherently magical but it's weird to have one in a staff isn't it but also i thought it would be a nice little nod towards our spider-based religion um which is led by mother nidus and her arachnid cathedral like i I imagine this big black spider is almost an ambassador for the church It's, it's it's not purely the equivalent of a religious icon although it is that but it's also actually might be literally keeping an eye or it's eight eyes or whatever on things you know sitting in Siavamir's staff and, and maybe even magically relaying information back to Nidus at the cathedral it's kind of cool that she's got these spiders that can spy on people spiders if you will i tried to pull back on one or two of the descriptions of the city and also to wait a bit before describing siavamir so i'm not just dumping all that information on the reader straight away uh does it matter i don't know i must admit re-reading the first scene out loud for the first time I didn't mind it as much as I thought I did. But maybe it can wait. I don't know. Like, I think between writing the first and second drafts of this, I wrote the podcast episode on Rutger Hauer's Tears in Rain death monologue from Blade Runner. And I I think seeing how successive edits improved that monologue, mostly by taking out world-building exposition to let the other parts of it breathe really to give them more space to breathe so the bits that it did mention had more impact i i i think that struck me and it's in my mind it's prominent in my mind i mean i'm not sure that you can skip out editing stages uh and sort of produce first drafts that are pre-edited by keeping things like that in your mind i I, unfortunately i you can't just like learn this and then never make the mistakes you you write the overwritten first draft that's not an error and then you and then you pick from the kind of sushi conveyor belt of ideas and world world building you created in that wonderful abundant lush stage really what you're doing there is planting seeds and then the edits the redrafts of the harvest uh that's not quite good because you do tend to hard harvest everything you can but um the edits a more conventional metaphor is it's pruning right that you you grow you you grow the tree and then and then you get out the chainsaw and shape it into a 
duck or whatever you're looking for. That's the editorial topiary part, right? Um, but anyway, it's just a principle that was in, in my head. I'm not sure I stuck to it, but whatever. I don't by any means think this is a scene I can't imagine improvements for, but I think several important decisions would require more context than I'll have without writing more story, basically. I think I'll be better at writing the characters the more story I have. So rather than dive into it any further, apart from, you know, there's parts of it I, I'm not being modest to say I don't hate. I'm quite interested in the world. I... I slightly regret taking out the some of the descript like the physical description of him remembering his mum being dead. Sorry to be sort of macabre, but of her body, you know. On reflection, I quite like that, but I don't need to deal with any of this right now because um, I, I think I, uh, the best thing for me to do is to press on from here and see what I come out with. So, as a loose idea in my head, I think it'd be cool if we've met as many of the characters the king is going to later want to hunt down and, and potentially kill as possible you know as many people who could be potential suspects in this conspiracy and also if there's been a time gap between his death and resurrection any changes in their circumstance and the, the kingdom at large will feel a bit more meaningful i, I don't want to wait very long before he gets murdered because we know that's coming and I think it's always a mistake to spend too long establishing the normal of a world before you break it with some with an inciting incident just because a story is about things going wrong and I think you should start as close to the first thing going wrong the first destabilization which creates this dynamic movement and change which is the lifeblood of all stories you should start as close to that as you can and so it's intrinsically a bad thing to wait too long going just doing your little yeah your little guided tour of the world however this is a world that where i've now invented the queen's dying as the opening destabilizing influence and there are clear problems and the character feels unequipped to deal with them and is going to have to make some decisions about what kind of ruler he wants to be uh and uh, and i should say like as an overarching thing you know normally then the question would be like can he be a good king the uh, the uh, you know title obviously points to that with the only good king or the only good queen or whatever we call it um with the implied corollary uh, the only good king is a dead king um but also i just don't agree with the premise that there's any such thing as a good king because it's just another way of saying a good dictator uh, unless we no not even the burger king not even the mascot of burger king um because a monarchy is anti-democratic and it's inherited wealth like it's just inherently terrible and the system is terrible so this is not going to be a story about a good king versus a bad king you know the thing about the lion king right is that scar's only able to do what he scar couldn't do that in a democracy <laughs> because you can't just murder one person and, and then you get to take over because of your bloodline and everyone has to follow you even though you're you are like obviously shit at your job and you're killing everyone and you're leading everyone into misery like that's not a that's not a problem that you solve by bringing a good king in to replace the bad king it's a problem you have by not following a monarchical system it's what made that possible in the first place a monarchical system which you know the circle of life the circle of life is like such a, a dark idea really it's it is notable to me that the you know that kind of idea of the natural order of nature and a natural hierarchy and everything being in harmony uh is something that you see in a lot of fascist writing of the 20th century of the early 20th century there are you know there are fascist nature writers and 
you look at something like Tarka the Otter, where you know we had the we had the, the you know you go you can go down to sort of North Devon and Cornwall and follow the Tarka Trail and go along the river of this kind of this otter living his life and and and, and Tarka faces the harsh reality of nature where the stronger animals prey on the weak but that's part of the natural order of things and it's kind of fierce and beautiful and it promotes strength and power um and and you know this was a book written by an open an unrepentant fascist who dedicated his work to you know the little man over the ocean with the big ideas uh he loved fascism he loved hitler and he promised his mum on his her deathbed that he could tried to console her by saying that her children would grow up under you know the blooming of a thousand year reich and 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 those nat- that naturalism was not you know he tried to set up a farm on fascist principles that naturalism was not unrelated to yeah so yes i'm saying that the lion king is inherently has inherently fascist leanings of course of course it does because it is it, it's it's saying that you need a, str- a, a strong wise dictator um and that's the only problem and not the system itself and so i'm not going to make this a story about like despite all the ways in which the system wants to be corrupt because then the implication is look actually what's gone wrong is people have conspired to stop the true king ascending to the throne and that's the big problem or and and what you'll often have you'll have a king protagonist or a queen protagonist and they're sort of deposed by someone who go who wants to install themselves as dictator or goes or at best we've got like the, the the monarchy is corrupt i'll tear it all down for vengeance for my own petty vengeance not because i want to liberate the people and then we will all burn in a sea of flames and chaos and it's like well no no no, no. okay so there's the monarchy's got some problems folks i admittedly which we can sort out through minor reforms but let's not let's not have chaos instead it's better than the alternative i don't want to do that so this story cannot end with him being a great sort of wise benevolent ruler and setting the monarchy back on a route that it ought to be on um like the monarchy is is bad and the only way that this can get better is if they tear down the systems of inherited wealth inherited power and give you know give people a voice and and make the nation reach uh, you know reach political maturity by uh, raising political consciousness in in the people and having them take control of their own futures that's what it is it'd be nice if we had that in the real world right so i just think it's important that we get some of the people who might be involved in this conspiracy against him uh and clearly so clearly but clearly like the danger with any story like this is that it's going to seem like it's kind of pro good kings and anti-bad kings right and if some of these people who take him down you know they're not of a royal bloodline then the implication is like they're usurpers and that's terrible uh because even you look at the kind of like chinese and japanese courtly romance their courtly sagas and they'll have sort of tragic loves across social boundaries or whatever um and we're supposed to think it's sort of these two yearning lovers who their positions or protocol mean they can't be together we're supposed to think that their romance is beautiful but also and tragic and it's tragic that they can't be together but also they can't be together like there's something noble in the fact they don't get together or they pine and take their own lives or whatever happens 
there's something noble in the fact that they respect the tra- traditions and those traditions survive them. And I just think that's bollocks. <laughs> you know, I just, I don't, don't like, I, that's not a kind of story I'm interested in writing. So I, I think, you know, it's going to be fine if one or more of the potential conspirators, uh, you know, I guess the end of level bosses, um, we don't actually meet them before the murder, but it'd be nice if they were all named. You know, that can be in- intriguing if, if, if someone's alluded to, but we don't actually get to see them face to face. But I mentioned the council here, which, you know, the council is very generic fantasy fair. Um, but I just meant I just had uh, the Chamberlain bring it up because that could be a way to quickly introduce some of these characters and some political tensions before the king's assassination. I think our Admiral of the Floating Isle, that's Admiral Tendria Crash Galore of the of Passerine House, de facto ruler of the aerial Isle of Neb- Nebula. I think they will definitely be there at the council and will be a clear, prominent personality. I think they definitely have ideas of how the kingdom should be run and will want to avail the king of those. Also, that whole dog business that I mentioned in both bits is just because I think if the king misses his dog, it might make us a tiny bit more invested in him. It's like... Pasco sounds like the name of a, a lovely dog. It sounds like the name of a good boy, right? And that is an incredibly unsophisticated move on my part. I grant you, don't know if it will work, but that is why I put it in there. Right, so there. I've written something in this novel with the working title The Only Good King, and at the time of recording, we're just about to start November, and of course, Nano Remo. So maybe I've picked a, what's the word, auspicious moment to start mindlessly ploughing ahead with a shitty first draft. Do shitty first drafts really work as a means of making progress on something you want to one day be a non-shitty final draft? Let's find out together. Right, I, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm going to gently point you towards three things before I go, one of which is purely for your benefit, while the other two are merely for mine. And then if you stick around to the very end, I shall offer you a quotation and a final vicarly thought. So first of all, if you like the show and you'd like to support it, you can go to my coffee page, link in the show notes. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare and drop me a few beans to help keep the lights on as a small one person show. I sure do appreciate listener support, including yours. Secondly, we have a Death of a Thousand Cuts Discord where you can share work, discuss writing, find folks to swap longer bits of writing uh, with for feedback and you can talk about the show link in the show notes if you'd like to sign up it's completely free and open to anyone who is chill and cool i'd love to have you there finally i'm a full-time writer with a family to support i have a few books out my novels the honors and the ice house and my new non-fiction book coward why we get anxious and what we can do about it i've put links in the show notes of today's episode or you can search the internet in order to find them and um, you could order them from your local bookshop your local bricks and mortar bookshop as well but if you want to support my career and maybe have some cool stuff to read please do consider buying one or more or maybe getting some as presents for friends and family thank you okay so on to that final thought the author and christian minister george Macdonald wrote that in heaven quote all that is not music is silence End quote. In other words, wherever you are, everything is in perfect harmony and therefore the only absence of that is perfect stillness, perfect silence, the ground upon which all music rests, which throws it into contrast. I suppose then by implication, he's saying that silence is heavenly, that silence can be as perfect and exalted as music. I think that's important for us to remember when we write. It's actually much easier for me to illustrate and praise examples of lush, detailed writing than it is for me to point out how silence serves the story. How cutting a scene early, leaving gaps, leaving things unsaid, unspoken, choosing to write in a spare, simple style for one section, then switching between high and low detail strategically... All of these things are just as important, just as powerful as the moments where you're able to find that crunchy specificity I'm always banging on about. Now, of course, we don't live in heaven, nor does our world have the, frankly, maddening sounding binaries that MacDonald proposes. We can slide between different modes as we see fit in our writing and we can do it in a gradiated way. 
But I just want to nudge you towards asking yourself as you write. Is this music? Or is it noise? And if you write a line and you decide it's the latter, might your story be better served by its removal, by replacing it with silence? There you are. Thought for the day. Hopefully that will positively inspire you to occasionally cut a line and not paralyse you into never writing anything for fear of sullying the perfection of heaven. Not my problem though, I've got a book to write. Thanks very much for listening, take care and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.